Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to him, to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, and welcome to Sacred City Church. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is David Sanderson. It's been a while since I've been here. It's been almost three years, November 2019. Um, last week, Jeff Miller, when he started his sermon, he gave you guys a big, long list of all of his qualifications for why he's up here. He's like, I'm an MC leader, and I was in the pastoral residency and all these things. And all I can say is that I drum over in Davenport. So uh, I'm used to coming up here on Sunday and being the loudest person for a while. So... Hopefully that carries over today. My notes are still loading here. There we go. All right, so it's nice to be up here. I'm excited to be up here preaching today. We're going to look at Psalm 2. So last week, uh, when Jeff preached, you guys went through Psalm 1. Um, these two psalms are meant to be a pair. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man, the man who loves the law of the Lord, who meditates on his word day and night. And because of this, God blesses him. To put it in Psalms 1 language, he uh, is renewed and refreshed like a tree planted by the water. He doesn't wither away as the wicked do, but he blossoms. This morning, we're turning away from this blessed man, and we're looking at the rest of humanity in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 talks about the peoples and the nations and the rulers and says that they are raging. They do not love the law, but in fact, they see it as a great burden to be cast off. Now, I'm excited to preach through this particular psalm this morning because I think it gives a very pointed warning for the church uh, and something that I think is uh, needed in our current culture. You see, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 spell out one thing very clearly. There are only two types of people. There's the blessed man of Psalm 1, and there are the nations raging in Psalm 2. And in the context of the Psalms, these two introductory chapters into this hymnal act as a warning to love the law of God, to see it as valuable. It's as if you were to open up this book and see the first two chapters, and they call you out. They challenge your character. They say, will you read these poems? Will you sing these songs and still chase after the world? 
or will you seek God? So that's where we're going this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll hop right into this text. So Father, I pray, um, yeah, I pray for our time in the Word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us and challenge us. I pray for conviction and hope. And Father, I pray that, uh, yeah, you would keep me from errors. God, any mistakes I make this morning, any um, wrongs that I say, Father, would you eliminate those? Would only truth be heard this morning? Um, yeah, be with us this morning. Speak to us through this text. Uh, Father, we love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and open that up. Psalm 2, we're going to walk through this verse by verse. Let's start in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We see in the first three verses that these nations, people's rulers, are all conspiring against the authority of God. They want to throw off his bonds or his cords. When you hear those words, think his wisdom, his statutes, his laws, his authority over the world, the order that he's built into creation. Now, I think, you know, this isn't hard for us to see. We see this all around us. This is an attitude that we're very familiar with. But this morning, I think it's important as we get started to think about where does that come from? Why does the human heart tend to kick against the law of God? In order to do that, I think we need to go back to the garden and ask ourselves, what was the sin that Adam and Eve committed? You might say, well, they ate from the, the tree that God told them not to, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And that's right, but we can go deeper than that, right? What's the heart issue? We're good sacred city people. Let's gospel Adam and Eve. What, why did they choose to eat this fruit? Well, Genesis 3 tells us that they saw that the tree was good for food. It says that Eve considered it a delight to the eyes and thought that it would make one wise. So they ate. And they decided in this moment that God was wrong when he said that they would surely die if they ate it. They believed that they knew better than him and that this food was good and right. And then what the serpent said, that it would make them to be like God. So in this moment, they commit cosmic treason. They set themselves against God in making themselves God. We see the aftershocks of this treason all over the Old Testament. Through the history of Scripture, we see God tell Cain that if he makes a right sacrifice, he can be approved. But instead, he decides to kill his brother and eliminate his competition. We see God give Noah's descendants what we call the cultural mandate. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth but they decide what's best for humanity is actually for us to all group together, build monuments to our own glory, and be our own gods. God frees Egypt, or God frees Israel from Egypt in a dramatic fashion, lots of miracles. The whole people of Israel sees God, we walk them across water. And yet when they approach the promised land and God tells them to take it, they, they decide that they know better than God. They're afraid and they run. Israel's history is full of moments where they forsake the law and wisdom of God to go their own way. 
seeking to throw off the bonds of God and be their own rulers, just like these nations and peoples raging in Psalm 2. This is the attitude that the, the writer of this psalm, most likely David, wants the reader or the hearer or the singer to be thinking about. This has and will be the fallen attitude of man until the return of Christ. The nations are raging. Now, this is not speaking about any particular nation. This is not a political power. Um, In the original context of the psalm, the, the readers would have thought the Gentiles. The Gentile nations around us, they're conspiring against us, Israel, God's anointed people, and they're conspiring against God. And that's not far off from how we can interpret it today as the church, right? Israel is the church. So we could look at this narrative of history as a battle between two nations, one being the nation of God, right? Happily living under the rule and authority of God, and one being the nation of flesh, a nation that is still under the rule and authority of God because he's their creator, but is kicking against his rule, wanting to be their own kings. This shouldn't be hard for us to see all around us today. Cultures, nations, people have thrown off these bonds. They don't want God's morality. They don't want God's structure or his wisdom. They want to go their own way. They want to do what they think is right, what they think is good or wise or just. And in this ridiculous rebellion, they make themselves their own gods and set themselves against God and his anointed Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy this morning to approach this psalm and think that this is about other people. But this is not about random nations or people or the liberal church. How often do you find yourself with this attitude, with this mentality, longing for the pleasures of the world, believing that what you really need for contentment, joy, satisfaction is right over there, but God is telling you to stay put. How often do you feel like God is holding out on you? If we grab on to that lie, it's very easy for us to set ourselves against God and pursue that riches, that whatever created thing that we're convinced will satisfy instead of pursuing God. And sadly, in doing that, we're taking that created thing and we're elevating it above God. And we're guilty of this same cosmic treason that Israel has been guilty of and the peoples have been guilty of for our whole history of humanity. The fact is that any agenda we pursue or priority that we push that is not in line with the kingdom of Jesus is rebellion. It's not enough for us to understand that this is, if, if that's not enough for us to understand that this psalm is talking about us, The Bible says it all over the place. It says in Romans 3.23 that we've fallen. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God in our sin. It says in Psalm 14 that God is seeking, looking through humanity, trying to find any who do right, any who seek after God. And in verse 3, it says that they've all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. No one does good, not even one. So don't just think this morning that this psalm is about your political enemies. It's not a psalm just for the liberal church. It's a psalm for you. In Charles Spurgeon's commentary on this passage, he says something right along these lines. He says, To the graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it's easy and light. 
we may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish it cast from us? In other words, is God's law beautiful to you? Do you long to see a world like our, our pastoral welcome says, we welcome all who long to see the world made right. What are you thinking? What are you thinking when you hear that phrase? Are you thinking that the world made right is a world living in line with the law of God? Or would you do it a different way? Would you cast aside the bonds of God and religion and build a world that you want? Let's keep moving in our passage. Let's look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So here we see the attitude of God towards these people that have set themselves against him. And what does he do? He laughs. He laughs at them. In the face of the rulers and the nations conspiring against him, setting all of the power and authority and wealth of the earth against God, he laughs. He looks at these rulers and considers them all a bunch of idiots. They're laughing stocks. That's what hold someone in derision means. It means scornfully mocking. He's making fun of them. Why? Because this rebellion of theirs is utterly foolish. What creature can challenge his creator? These nations, nations have banded together to set everything they have against God, wanting to remove his ethics from their society. And think about what that, what that means. Think about what they're trying to do there. They're trying to take everything that God created, logic, ethics, morality, relationships, cultures, kingdoms. He's trying to take, they're trying to take all of those things and bend them to their own will instead of God's. Trying to separate those things from God's will and his ordered existence and bend it to their own. I think a, a good case study of that would be our own culture today, right? We live in a culture that's not very original and seeks affirmation and identity through sexuality. Tons of cultures have done this throughout history, and it turns out we're not very creative. But today, I think we can consider this. What are our culture's sexual moral ethics? What's the framework that the kingdom of flesh is trying to bend reality to? And I think you can sum it up in, in three points. Say, one, that all sex is good as long as it's between consenting people, consenting adults. Two, we shouldn't judge anyone for their choices in this sacred space. Multiple partners, the gender of those partners, levels of commitment, none of that should matter as long as there's consent. And number three, there should be no consequences for casual sex. This is the world that the nation of flesh wants to build. But unfortunately for them, that's not the world that God created. And in seeking to cast off God's bonds of creation in this place, they have to bend to this structure and it brings them to a place where the term woman should not be defined unless we judge someone for their sexual decisions. It brings them to a place where abortion has to be a human right 
in order to hold up that third principle that casual sex should have no consequences. It brings our culture to chaos because the omnipotent bonds of God, of an almighty holy God, are not so easily broken. There's a Greek myth about a king named Sisyphus who angered uh, the Greek god Zeus. And, in order, and his punishment for angering Zeus was that he was, for eternity, meant to roll this giant boulder up a hill or a mountain. But every time he would get to the top, it would roll back down to the bottom for eternity. It's meant to be this image of pointless labor, of futility. And I think it fits this morning. Sisyphus cannot roll this boulder to the top of the mountain, and we cannot break the bonds of God. It's futile. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles are praying together, and they reference this psalm. They're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, and they're kind of portraying it through the lens of this psalm, of the the nation's raging. And in chapter 4, verse uh, 27... They say this, they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. We know what they're conspiring to do, right? They're going to kill Jesus. And in, in this moment, the apostles are comparing, they're saying that, that this attempt to kill God is the strongest attempt that the nation of flesh could ever give to throwing off the bonds of God, right? Actually killing him. And they did it, right? Jesus is dead. Great. God's gone. No more bonds. We can do whatever we want, right? But no. Not only because we know that Jesus isn't dead, but we can look at the very next verse, Acts chapter 4, verse 28. It says that they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Do you see the futility? Right? The very strongest blow the nation of flesh could ever give. Pointless. The killing of Jesus accomplished nothing for the kingdom of flesh. In fact, it accomplished everything that God was already setting out to do. Futile. God was in control the whole time. Things were never out of hand for him. They never stood a chance. The struggle against God is exactly what verse 1 of our psalm says. It says the people's plot in vain. It's vanity. It's pointless. Who are you to challenge God's kingdom? But no matter how foolish it is, we keep trying. We do it all the time. And God laughs. Let's look at the next couple verses. Let's see what God does next. Verses five and six. It says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice that comparison where where things are set. The people have set themselves against God, and God has not set himself against the people. He hasn't dropped fire down from heaven. There's no wrath coming for them. He set his king. He's completely ignoring them. He's going about his business, doing what he's going to do. Why doesn't he strike them down? 
right? This, these nations, you know, big giant army coming against God, and he doesn't, why isn't there fire from heaven? There's no attack from God because they're not an obstacle, right? God is going to win this. There's nothing they can do. The psalmist tells us that this statement terrifies the people because of just that. Despite everything they've done to throw off the bonds of God, God has already accomplished everything he set out to do in setting his king on Zion. For the Christian, that's incredible news. Often we look around us and we see a world that's set against God, set against the church, and seems like it's only getting more powerful, that the culture is swaying more towards that side of the battle. I mean, how often do, how often do you worry about what the future looks like for your kids? Like, what, what will it look like to have faith and be a Christian publicly in 100 years? The good news of this passage is that God wins. That God has already set his king above the nations. The ten, that means that the tensions that we feel in this life, the persecution that the church has already faced and will face is light in comparison to the glory of God's victory. It's light in comparison to what waits for us in heaven. We can have so much confidence in dealing with these trials because we know that God has already won, that a king has already been set over the nations. And we see this victory expressed even further in the next two verses, seven and nine. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. As soon as we read verse seven, we should be thinking prophecy. Right? We see uh, you are my begotten. Jesus is the only begotten son. John 3.16, we all know that. So what we're seeing here is the psalmist relaying a conversation between the father and the son of Jesus. The son Jesus. The father will give the nations to Jesus and he will break them. This is reminiscent of uh, Genesis chapter 3 where it says that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. It's just another expression of that. The Father will give the nations to Jesus and he will break them. This rebellion that has been the story of humanity since creation, since the fall, will be crushed by the work of Christ. And I have to ask you this morning, how does that make you feel? Where do you go when you think of that? If you love the law of the Lord, if you love Jesus, Again, it's great news. It should be extremely comforting. It makes me think of this song by uh, Shane and Shane. It's based on Psalm 43, actually. Uh, the lyrics to the bridge, they go like this. It says, Though the oceans roar, you are the Lord of all, the one who calms the winds and waves and makes my heart be still. Though the earth gives way and the mountains move into the sea, the nations rage, I know my God is in control. So no matter what may come, no matter how chaotic the world is around us, the nations raging, the mountains moving, your heart can be still. Because Jesus is on the throne. The nations will be dashed. We know the end of the story. 
Verses seven through nine for the Christian are a great promise of a king that is one. But for the rebel, it's terrifying because it means that there's nothing that you can do or will do or could ever do to stop God's victory. No matter how many institutions are rebuilt, no matter how many culture wars are won for the kingdom of the flesh, none of it will stand. So if you're someone who's come from a long life of sin, or maybe someone who feels like they could never really be clean, take this to heart. This is a promise of restoration for everything that sin has damaged. Everything your sin has damaged. God will make all things new, and you cannot outsin God's victory. To the rebel, this is a restatement of the futility of the rebellion. It's a promise that everything they work for will be brought down. And this ties directly into the warning that we see in the next few verses. Let's look at 10 and 12. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist in this section turns away from prophecy and goes to what you could call the moral of the story. Right? The moral of this psalm. We've got two things. We've got a warning and we've got an invitation. The warning is simple. Switch sides. Defect from the nation of flesh, or your fate will be the same as that nation's. You'll be dashed into pieces. Change teams. Kiss the sun, lest you perish. It's a simple warning, but it begs the ultimate question. Where do you stand this morning? What nation are you in? Maybe for some of us, it's hard to know. We feel like we play both sides. So I ask, this might help. Ask again, what do you think of the cords of God? God's law, God's wisdom, what God wants of the world, is that a burden to you? Does it feel boring? Or do you love them? Where do you stand? And here's the invitation. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Maybe this morning as we've been working through this psalm, you've pictured God as jealous, wrathful, a vindictive ruler who's just mad that nobody's doing what he wants. throwing a a childish temper tantrum. And if that's that's how you look at God, I, I don't think you're alone, first of all. I think a lot of people in our culture look at God that way, especially when they look at the Old Testament. But if that's your understanding of God, if that's how you think of him, this invitation to kiss the sun, to change sides, to submit, to to take refuge in Jesus is probably not very attractive at all. In fact, it probably feels very coercive. 
But if we truly know the heart of God, this invitation is beautiful. We should long to kiss the sun. Jeff said last week in his sermon, he said, rules without relationship equals rebellion. Right? He said that a few times. I don't know where he got that, but I really like that. I think it fits perfectly for us this morning. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. Those who have set themselves against God, they show their hand. They obviously know nothing about God and his love for them. They do not know the character of God or else they would long for this invitation because God's bonds are for you, right? I said earlier how it's foolish, this rebellion that we fight against God because it's pointless, because we'll never win. But it's also foolish. The rebellion is foolish because God is for you. His bonds, his commandments, his wisdom are for you and you're flourishing. We can find this all over the Bible, but since this is summer in the Psalms, I thought, let's just go through some Psalms. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Psalm 16, you, God, you make known the path of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 40, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, those who go astray after a lie. I like this part. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim of them, yet there are more than can be told. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, God is great. Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. This is the God that we rebel against. The God who sustains us, restores our soul, who's pulled us up from the pit. The God who thinks of us and does good things for us so often that we can't possibly tell of them all. That's the God that we rebel against. Don't miss this. Everything that the flesh promises you is here. Protection, acceptance, peace, love, pleasures, joy, happiness. The reason the flesh can pull at us so hard, why why temptation is so hard, is that we're designed for all of these things. We're just meant to have them in God. Kiss the ring, kiss the sun, and know this blessing. And yet, in our foolishness, we rebel. Now, this rebellion is one thing for someone who has never known God, someone who's never tasted and seen his goodness. But it's on an entirely different level for someone who has 
You've been freed from the power of your sin. You've been adopted as a son. You've been given a seat at the table of the Lord. You've tasted and seen the goodness of God, and then you turn around and you go back and you put on old chains. Proverbs 26, 11 says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. We truly are this rebellious, stubborn, foolish people. But there is hope for the rebel, and his name is Jesus. The only hope for the rebel is that the king that you betrayed has dealt with the consequences of your betrayal. The penalty that you deserve has been paid by someone else, Jesus. Who will be saved when the nations are dashed? How will any of us escape the righteous fury of Jesus? Repentance and faith. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, repentance and faith. That's what it looks like to take refuge in Christ to repent of your rebellion, to turn from it, to hate it, to regret it, and to see that Jesus died for it. Repentance and faith. And when you rebel again, when your sin grows attractive again, when your heart grows cold towards God, what then? You do it again. Repentance and faith. You do it again and again and again. Why? Because Christ is everything. Jesus is where life is found. It's in this life of continual repentance and faith that stubborn and rebellious men like me can be counted as righteous, can be counted as blessed, can be seen as the man who bears good fruit. Because get this, that's not me, but it is Jesus. And when you take refuge in him, you too can be counted blessed. So where are you this morning? Are you still waging a pointless war against God? Or will you kiss the sun? Will you take refuge in him? Every week when we take communion, we do this visibly, right? The Lord's Supper is a a physical confession that we need Jesus' sacrifice in order to have life. So I challenge you this morning that if you are set against God and his son, I pray that you would kiss the son. I pray that instead of communion this morning, that you would take refuge in Christ And if you've already done that, I pray that you've been reminded to do it again. We take his body broken for us. We take his blood spilled for us as a weekly reminder and nourishment for this life of continual repentance and faith. Let me pray for us. Father, I I praise you for being a God who chases rebels down. Father, I pray that this morning that you would make it clear for each of us where we stand. God, show us where our hearts are set against you. And I pray that you would give us a vision of what it looks like to repent in those areas. God, I pray that you would 
kill the fleshly desires in our hearts that make that so difficult? Yeah, and Father, I pray that any that have not submitted to the kingdom of Christ who are waging war against you, God, I pray they put down their weapons, Father, that they would see the futility, that they would see how much you love them, and Father, that they would change sides, God, that they would kiss the sun this morning. Father, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.